Tribune, listing him as missing. A photograph of the medical staff of the Kobe Prisoner of War Hospital in Japan, dated November 1944. These are the mementos of my father's war. As children, my brother, sister, and I glimpsed these artifacts as rarely as we heard the tales behind them. Shards of memories came to light and were then tucked away, along with the Navy uniform he stored in a government-issue footlocker that we rarely saw open. Only one incident can I recall with any clarity. My father and his buddies were once so hungry that they killed, skinned, and ate a cat. It appealed to a boy's delight in the grotesque, lent him a certain stature, and we inquired no further except to ask how cat tastes. Gamey as hell, came the reply. In retrospect, it is odd but understandable that we grew up knowing so little about World War II, the most devastating war in human history. Fifty million lives were lost. 2.35 million Japanese died. 406,000 Americans were killed. And 78,976 Americans were listed as missing. Between September 1940, when Congress enacted the Selective Service Act, and August 1945, 31 million American men registered for the draft, and 16 million men and women served their country. The war mobilized civilian participation to an unprecedented degree. Nearly 2 million American women worked in defense factories. 59,000 women joined the Army Nurse Corps. Some 56,000 physicians volunteered for duty. My father was not a combatant. He was a doctor whose battles were fought on the front line of disease. A lieutenant junior grade in the U.S. Navy Medical Corps, he was stationed on Bataan and then attached to the 4th Marines on Corregidor. As battalion surgeon in a campaign led by the Army six years before the first mobile Army surgical hospital, MASH units came into being, his role was to help, not harm. As if wars could ever be neat, clean surgical operations, the war in the Pacific has been called a dirty war, a war without mercy, as historian John Dower described it. Many American soldiers were instilled with racial stereotypes of the Japanese as treacherous, savage, subhuman. Roosevelt and Churchill themselves vowed to crush the barbarians of the Pacific. Such language bore a striking resemblance to the conception propagated by the Japanese of Westerners who were, said the Japanese schoolbook, cardinal principles of the national polity, intrinsically quite different from the so-called citizens of Occidental countries. The Japanese viewed Americans in particular as soft, self-indulgent, and individualistic. The Japanese, by contrast, belonged to the genetically pure Yamato race, a tribe of one hundred million whose superiority lay in conformity. As Shido Minzoku, the leading race, their goal expressed as Hako Ichiu, or eight corners of the world under one roof, was the subjugation of all other Asians and the replacement of Anglo-American imperialism with a new world order. Under Emperor Hirohito, this became the essence of their kokutai, or national polity. U.S. and Filipino troops fighting on Bataan and Corregidor suffered horribly from hunger and disease. They were expendable, to borrow the title of W.L. White's book about John Bulkley and Motor Torpedo Boat Squadron 3, published in 1944. Sacrificed on the altar of hubris, they were the casualties of an American military strategy known as War Plan Orange 3. It was doomed to failure.
They were promised that help is on the way by General Douglas MacArthur, while Roosevelt advocated a policy of Europe first. Japanese soldiers on Bataan confronted similarly harsh conditions, but they had reinforcements whereas the American and Filipino troops had none. The Japanese were indoctrinated with the code of Bushido, the way of the warrior, and the belief that there was no greater glory than to die in the service of the emperor. The Pacific POW, said E. Bartlett Kerr, underwent an experience unlike that of his millions of fellow veterans. Of the approximately 193,000 Allied prisoners of the Japanese in the Pacific, 36,260 were American. POWs were systematically deprived of food and medicine. They were humiliated, beaten, starved, and in the worst instances, tortured and executed. Their fate hinged on their own ingenuity, the will to live, as one American doctor put it, the occasional kindness of camp guards and commandants, and sheer good luck. It was a war in which absolute power was punished absolutely. Forty-two percent of the 25,580 U.S. Army and Navy personnel captured in the Philippines never returned. My father was one of the lucky ones. Like many prisoners of war, he could not have endured on his own. Fred Burley, George Ferguson, John Bookman, and my father, Murray Glussman, were a group, a team, as it were, of four Navy doctors. From desperate backgrounds, they were dedicated to their professions, devoted to their patients, comrades in hardship, and healing. All of them were decorated. As doctors, their perspective on war and captivity was unique, but none would valorize their experience. If they suffered under the Japanese, they also experienced moments of genuine compassion. Three of them survived. One never made it home. The war defined them as young men, and while its imprint faded with time, it remained a palimpsest beneath the narrative of their lives. It colored their language, surfaced in their dreams, tempered their outlook, and sketched, however faintly, the world they created for their children. But they would rather bury their memories than exhume them. We did nothing extraordinary, my father said with characteristic understatement. We lived in extraordinary times. In Civilization and Its Discontents, Freud wrote that one of the sins of contemporary education was its failure to prepare future generations for the aggressiveness of which they are destined to become the objects. This is the lesson I learned from my father and his buddies. This is their story. Chapter 1 The Prettiest Girl in the World He wrote to her almost every day. Short letters, long letters, recollections, reminders, anecdotes and little jokes, dreams from the night before, and imaginings of their future, handwritten or hammered out on his new Hermes typewriter. It was November 1939, and he couldn't bear to leave her, nearly quit the damn Navy when he saw Shanghai fade away. They had met in Washington, D.C. in January of that year. He was in Naval Medical School, having earned the rank of assistant surgeon, lieutenant junior grade. She had been living and teaching in Madison, Wisconsin. From the moment he first noticed her petal-white complexion, pert apple cheeks, and luxurious black hair, he couldn't stop looking at her. Couldn't stop thinking about her. So when he was ordered that spring to report to the Asiatic Station once he had completed his postgraduate course of instruction, he slyly popped the question, 
Do you think you can handle servants? Of course I can, she replied without equivocation. George Theodore Ferguson and Lucille Ann Holliday were married at St. Peter's Church by Father Urban Eberly in Chicago on May 20, 1939. His mother, unhappy with the prospect of losing her only son, refused to give the union her blessing. It was a small ceremony. The only Ferguson present was George's little sister, Jane, and the only holiday was Lucy's father, Roland. And it was a short ceremony, too, since they were on their way to San Francisco, where they would board the President Garfield for their Trans-Pacific voyage. George looked dapper in his crisp navy whites. Lucy, as George called her, or Duchess when he teased her, wore a sleek black suit that defied fashion and tradition and made an indelible impression, even if it aroused in Jane that old superstition, bad luck. George had little knowledge of Japan's war with China, its desperate need in the wake of the Depression to feed a growing population, acquire raw materials, and assuage the appetite of young militarists whose ethos would permeate all aspects of Japanese life, from the highest ranks of the Imperial Japanese Army down to kindergarten. Nor was he aware of Japan's historic animosity toward the United States. For George, like many American men, war was an abstraction and military service a means to an end. It provided steady employment, paid for one's education, and paved the way to a prosperous future. He was an optimist by nature, reared on the pioneer spirit of his hometown, Kansas City, Missouri, that port of entry to the American West where the Missouri River bends north, the Big Blue River snakes south, and enterprising young men hit the overland trails. He was gifted with his hands, knew he could make things work, not just in theory, but in practice. He realized...